Today, I grab coffee with Tessa Wijaya, who's the co-founder of Zendit, spelled X-E-N-D-I-T, which is the fastest-growing digital payments infrastructure for Southeast Asia. Zendit just raised a $65 million Series B led by Axel. And what I love about this conversation is Tessa, who was born and raised in Indonesia, brings that really rich understanding of the local and regional nuances of doing business in a region like Southeast Asia. We also talk about Zendit being the first Southeast Asian startup to get into Y Combinator, which is a very famous seed accelerator that has launched more than 2,000 companies like DoorDash, Airbnb, Coinbase. We talk about Tessa's stint in private equity and her transition into entrepreneurship. Finally, Tessa does share lessons learned and advice that she can pass on to fellow female entrepreneurs who are also aspiring founders. This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. Let's kind of start on the on the life aspect of things. Um, and I know, and thank you again, I know it's 10 p.m. right now uh, in, in your side of the world, so I really appreciate that kind of grit from an entrepreneurial perspective. But what was life like in, in Indonesia, you know, having uh, been born there, but also just kind of early life before we get to the entrepreneurial side, just curious for, for those listening, what life was like. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, I sound very American, but I was actually born and raised in a, a really small town in West Java. That's um, the island where the capital city is at in Indonesia. Um, so started out really being a country kid, uh, moved to the big city uh, when I was a teenager uh, to live with my dad. My parents were divorced, um, sort of got exposed to the Western world when um, I was sent off to go to school, to boarding school, actually. Um, so while I started out in Indonesia, I did kind of grow up all over the place. Uh, I went to school in Australia and then went to a university in America. Uh, quite a, a really interesting um, experience to be able to experience East and West uh, throughout the period of my life. Yeah, I, I can definitely resonate. I used to call this the immigrant roadshow. I mean, I went to probably four different high schools, so I, I know where you're coming from. And to your point, like it's, I, I'm actually curious on that point because you've seen Australia, which is kind of resembling what Canada is like, probably. You've seen the U.S., you've seen Southeast Asia. First question is, and obviously it might be a bit biased, but where did you feel um, most comfortable? And the second question is, um, what were the stark differences between maybe the three different places. Yeah, where where am I more most comfortable now? Um, I guess here in Indonesia, but for a very long time, the answer would be nowhere. <laughs> you know, uh, it's like uh, some people uh, who are born outside of, you know, where their nationality is, they're called third world kids. Right. I guess in a sense I'm not a third world kid, but you know, um, in Australia, I was considered either a tourist or a foreigner. Uh, in Indonesia, you know, they're like, oh, how come you look Indonesian, but you, sometimes you don't sound Indonesian? Uh, yeah. Actually, I think the most open um, it's been um, has been living in America because I think there's so many immigrants. When when I'm in the States, people don't think I I'm, I come from outside of America. It's really okay. different than, you know, um, in, in other in other countries. And I think um, I think it's interesting just just to observe that. Um, you know, um, being uh, an outsider in a sense, uh, even in, in my home market, it gives me a really good, I guess, observation uh, of, you know, and, and a lot of different culture to take in from both, I guess. Yeah, that's such a good point, especially I think a lot of people might not 
fully realized, especially if you're not a third, uh, you know, maybe a third country person, as an example. I mean, I'm, I'm, I would fit that as well. Uh, but but your earlier point about, especially like being in your home country, but if you have a very um, a very good English accent, as an example, you might even seem as a foreigner, even though you're a native to your own country. And it kind of makes you feel like I don't really know where home is or home is where I'm just residing at the moment. I've, I've had the same kind of feeling. And uh, it's quite interesting to hear you say that. Um, so early life, were you always, and I know, you know, you've had a different um, maybe career track. It wasn't always within entrepreneurship, but curious, like in Southeast Asia, when you were younger, um, when was the first kind of sighting of entrepreneurship? Like when was that first embedded in your mind that, wow, this, like, th this is my definition of what entrepreneurship looks like? Yeah, that's a really great question. Look, um, I come from a family of entrepreneurs and it's really uh, by necessity rather than, you know, a choice. Uh, what I mean by this is um, from my mother's side, um, a, a lot of the family weren't very wealthy. Um, a lot of us came from, um, you know, backgrounds where we had to make an ends meet and therefore we have to be entrepreneurial. Uh, from my grandmother to my aunt, you know, a lot of a lot of the women uh, have a lot of strong women in my family, and they all had to cook to make a living. You know, there there were some aunts who you know got a divorce and she had to feed three children and put them through school. So she had to open up a shop, uh, a canteen, uh, just cook. You know, she had to wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning every day, cook her own meals, and then sell it to to people who work in offices and office buildings and in, in, in the surrounding area. So, so I saw that spirit really early on, early on, and uh, you know I know they're they're not running tech companies, but the spirit is about the same, right? It's all about right. the hustle, all about providing for your customer. It's all about providing good products so people will come back and buy your goods. So true, yeah. Like that's that's the way you know we would define it as well in Lebanon. Is it's just traditional business, right? It's like business one hundred and one, uh, taking care of your customers, and it was never like a glamorous thing. You know how I don't know if you felt the same thing, but when I moved to Canada and the U.S. I'm like, wait, hold on a second. What is this community of entrepreneurship? You know, the startup ecosystem, like what the hell is, you know, I, I really didn't have a notion of what this was like. To us, business was, to your point, it was like a livelihood. I mean, it's not like you had a choice or you were raising capital and you celebrated. Nobody really talked about any of that, you know? It was just- That's what right. you There had. were no spaces for my aunt. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, you know, they all made it, I think. Yeah, there's no accelerators. Um, so I guess that that's a really good thing to see then when you're young and especially when you have powerful women, um, especially within business, right? Uh, do you feel like that to you and especially where you are today, that visual aspect? Like I'm sure your 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 direct family didn't come to you like, Tessa, we're entrepreneurs, so you're going to become an entrepreneur one day. It's more indirect, right? It's because you see it, you feel that it's a possibility for you down the road. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, uh, life was really hard for a lot of my family members. So it wasn't something glamorous to be, you know, starting a business. As I said before, it was a necessity. But it also made me think, hey, um, there are other things um, to explore out there. You know, you don't you don't have to just go and have a career and then that's it. You can also have that spirit, uh, you know, to have that independence to be able to try new things and, um, you know, succeed at it. So I think that was really inspiring. That's amazing. Now, so you said, um, I think the, the last part was in the U.S. Now, after the U.S., then you the, you moved back home. What was that decision like? Like, why why study abroad, both in Australia and the U.S., and then decide to come back home? Yeah, I think um, for me, it was about looking at opportunities. 
I could have stayed either in Australia or uh, in America, gone through the traditional route, uh, and then, you know, be a professional my whole life. But I thought, you know what, uh, Southeast Asia has been super interesting. Um, it was, you know, up and coming. And I thought if I went back, maybe I could do a little bit more cool stuff. I mean, I did end up working first before joining this entrepreneurial journey, but I right. thought, um, you know, taking that chance, maybe there'll be other opportunities once I've experienced the professional world. And that was really why I chose to come back. Yeah. And speaking of that professional work, I think it might be interesting to talk about your stint within private equity, right? With a uh, firm, for instance, like Mizuho, uh, where you were an associate. How was that like for, I know from a lot of people, especially in university, and I'm sure you heard this as well. Like it's pretty tough to get into PE, the VC world, M&A. These are not like firms that recruit online where you can find stuff on, you know, on, on Indeed or whatever. It's it's tough to crack into that, especially earlier in your life cycle. So curious, how was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I wouldn't say uh, I think I, I would say that um, I kind of was back in Indonesia at the right time. The talent pool, obviously, in the market was a little bit more shallow. So people were willing to take a chance. So if you had a good background, you know, you studied overseas, they were like, hey, come on board, we'll train you. So I think that was really, really amazing. There were some people who took a chance on me. You know, I didn't even have a finance background, really, when I started out in private equity. Um, and you guys were like, all right, we'll take you on board. As long as, you know, you have some good analytical skills, we'll train you from the ground. So I think, I think that was a big, amazing chance that I got. Um, and then, so I joined, um, they trained me. I worked really, really hard. You know, I was, I remembered I was going though against um, some people. I remember there was a fresh grad who graduated from MIT and I felt like, okay, that bar is set really, really high. Um, and I just had to work really, really hard to get to, to where they're at or to get to a level that, that was acceptable in the company. But the great thing about being in private equity, the great thing about being in this, in this great machinery, right? you get your hard skills really honed in you're doing a lot of stuff over and over again. So, so having that cadence, having that discipline, I think was a great precursor to being at a startup. Um, I mean, you know, in private equity, you're working day and night. You have to be able to do the analysis, you have to do the financial model over and over and over again. And I think that discipline really, really helped in, in me learning to run a startup. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's often the case where you see, for instance, ex McKinsey, ex BCG, ex private equity firms, VCs, make really good founders for that exact reason uh, and also probably because you're on the investment side you actually know what the other side is looking for much more intimately right and we'll, we'll get to, to zend it now but um and that's what i wanted to ask like what was that tipping point was like when did you actually realize the pain point for zend it were you working on a different client a solution that popped up in your mind yeah so i think um I'd been in private equity for a while back then. I think it was about six years on, which is a very, very long time, uh, at least in the early stage of my career. A lot of time. Um, yeah, exactly. So I started seeing um, this sort of digital transformation in market in Indonesia. So, you know, obviously we started out a lot later. When I was um, at the end of my, my, my time at private equity, um, the big uh, tech movement was mostly on e-commerce side. But I started seeing that transformation of, hey, suddenly it wasn't about traditional companies anymore. It wasn't about brick and mortar. It was about this new thing. What is this, this thing that was online? And so I wanted to know a little bit more about that. Um, and what I realized was in market, you know, infrastructure 
is something that's that's really lacking in Asia and Southeast Asia. And you know, a lot of times when you think infrastructure, all right, it's all about building tall roads, uh, building you know ports. But actually, this whole digital econom economy infrastructure that was also super lacking. And I realized, how are we going to get to that next level? How are we going to get um, other companies to grow when that payment infrastructure wasn't there? So I think that was a really inter interesting point where I thought, you know what? Maybe let's take a leap. Let's give it a try. Let's let's try to build something that's cool to help um, other startups, to help other business other businesses grow in Asia. And how do you like when you first tackle the the digital payment side? Um, and I think actually we've seen comparable solutions work, for instance, in Africa, right, where the infrastructure isn't necessarily there. To your point, but it's so different than the way the makeup of North America is. So when your education is based on the way things work in North America, for for the most part, I know you you know you do case studies and it's it's a global perspective, but taking what would otherwise seem a very different solution that would apply in the U.S. and try to do that in Southeast Asia, where maybe on trim they're at different stages in their life, was that a was that a challenge for you? Yeah, definitely. Look, um, I think uh, you have to understand in 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 North America or in the Western world, payment is all about credit cards. Uh, so, you know, you can go to any store, swipe a card and that's it. Payment gets done. You can go online and, you know, after you've inputted your card number once, the next time you go shop, you have this one click of a button and that's it. Things just work. Um, you have to understand right. that most people in Asia don't even own credit cards. The concept of instant payment, something that everybody else takes for granted, it's pretty much not there. Instant payment for us uh, way back when we started Zendit was anywhere between two hours to six hours to maybe tomorrow or who knows when it'll arrive. Um, so how can you have this digital economy? How can you have, you know, e-commerce players and everything else online? How can you have apps? How can you have Uber when you can't even make a payment? So I think it's been, um, yeah, just just super mind boggling. But I thought an amazing challenge to be able to tackle. Do you feel like in some cases it was a bit actually easier to implement? Because I know, for instance, what we're seeing now with blockchain, it's actually being implemented in places where infrastructure is still a bit more nascent. And it's actually easier, like it's easier to pave roads where roads aren't yet built, right? But I'm curious, like, was that actually easy at the same time? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, was it easier? Um, I guess theoretically speaking, it should have been, but I think where we're working with in Asia is you have to navigate the existing infrastructure first. It's not like we're starting from from nothing. We're starting to having to fix that infrastructure that's already there. So what I mean is systems that have been implemented by banks that may have been, you know, started or or that have been created for an indus industries uh, that are very traditional, right? I mean. I still remember a time where even when you want to pay by card, you have to like swipe it. Uh, I don't know, this like weird machine that has like a piece of paper on it and it's got a carbon copy, uh, you right. know, carbon copier for the number. Um, they, they still use, use that, funny enough. Before you continue, I just wanted to mention in Canada, if you ever take the railway, like the train, right? for whatever reason, they still use that. And I, I guarantee you, like all millennials or Gen Zs on that train are like, what the hell is this? machine you know like am i sending a fax or something but anyways my goodness yeah so i think i think simplifying that i think um translating that to the modern world to a world where everything is automated to a world of apis i think that has been a really big challenge and you know 
it's not just about converting that, but convincing the incumbents, conv convincing the banks, convincing the other payment players that, hey, this is possible, that this is something, uh, this is a future to look forward to. I think that's been a very, very big challenge. Uh, yeah. So for those wondering, um, maybe just a quick visual. Let's say I'm a new user to Zendit and I want to actually use it from like a 365 foot view. How would that actually look like in terms of from step A to step Z? Yeah, um, so Zendit, I guess for, for everyone here, it, we're a, a B2B player. So we support merchants who want to accept payments online. We're basically the stripe of Asia. Um, so how to be able to come online with us is, is simple. Uh, say you're with a platform like Shopify, you can select us and then you can activate with us and then you can use us to accept payments. Basically, we're like the piping, so we'll connect the end user, the bank, you know, Visa, MasterCard, other methods of payments uh, to your platform. Um, so you can sign up quite easily. But for those of you who are not with the likes of Shopify, obviously you can take our API docs, you can integrate to us direct, and you can accept payments through your own website. Um, for smaller merchants also, though, I think, which is interesting in market, um, we actually provide what we call a payment link. And that might sound really bizarre to you, but, but in Asia, a lot of sellers actually sell through um, WhatsApp, through Instagram. So we're call, we call them social sellers. Right. Uh, and we don't have Instagram shops like in America. So really what will happen is uh, people will chat to you on WhatsApp mm -hmm. and people will buy through chatting on WhatsApp. It's really weird. So people will send pictures of, hey, th these are the things that we're selling. And the buyers can be like, all right, I think that looks good. I'm going to buy it. So we, we actually provide this invoicing system where, you know, you can create a payment link, essentially. You send this link through WhatsApp. So basically, it's like a URL and it click, you click on it and it, it's an invoice page. And then you can continue to accept payments online through that. Right. Yeah, I know. Trust me, I, I use WhatsApp every, pretty much every day uh, to, to call the family back home. So um, that's, it's not far-fetched. And you, and you see also apps like WeChat as an example, which are... I mean, that's yeah. a whole difference. I think we need a full podcast for that. But um, I think once you cross like North America, a lot of everything is done through chat messaging platforms. Whereas I think it's just more social. I mean, you're starting to see a bit of evolution. But, you know, to your point, we don't use Instagram primarily for purchases. You might see it to view like a shirt you really like or shoes in the Explore feed. But it's primarily for pictures, for influence, whatever you want to call it. Um, whereas I feel like in Southeast Asia, You've turned something that's accessible to everyone. It's free to use. And you've turned it into a system that people are comfortable with using to transact, basically. Oh, totally. You can buy everything from clothes to chili sauce to <laughs> whatever it is you want. It's there. Um, yeah, it's pretty pretty strange maybe for, for those of you guys who are in the Western world where you're like, mind blown. <laughs> what? You can buy chili sauce on Instagram. <laughs> You can. Yeah. What is WhatsApp? I wanted to ask you actually just quickly on this as well. In terms of the trust factor, right? Like you probably tapped into WhatsApp and some of the some of the things maybe that people are comfortable with because they use it on a daily basis. But I'm I'm curious because for instance in the US, I know sometimes depending on the year, like in 08, I think the trust in the banking system was very low. You know, and so if you were to launch something like a wealth simple or an acorn in 08, probably not the best idea, right? But I'm curious, like, did you have did you have a hurdle basically to get people to trust you, especially when it's a, a platform that that curates uh, payments? 
Um, it's really interesting, actually. I think um, in Indonesia, we say that everyone is willing to try something once. So okay. we're, uh, we're, we're very trusting as, as a society. But when you're, you're talking about merchants using us, obviously we're a payment player. We have to be very secure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's all about money is slightly different. Um, I do think that we have to have certain standards to abide by for, for merchants to trust us. Uh, but I think in the beginning, you know, how we started out was there were a lot of other startups that, that were propping up in market. It was a really great time to be in Indonesia because fintech was just starting out. Um, so they saw our they saw basically our tech stack and they were like, wow, how can you do this? How can you make payments instantly? How can you accept payments instantly? So they were willing to try it out because there weren't many other options in the market. Right. Um, so really, that was how we built our company is from getting other startups, getting other players to try our product and to say, hey, this is super duper amazing. Can you make more of these types of things? Hmm. It's actually good to know culturally that um, you're the type of people that would trust first, you know, and then basically try it out. If it if the reputation doesn't hold, you know, probably you'll you'll never try it again. So that, that's interesting to know. Um, I didn't know know that culturally speaking. Um, switching things to to the capital raising side. For those who don't know, first of all, um, now that you kind of have a picture of what Zend it does, but um, since since you launched, I believe in 2015, if I'm not mistaken, um, you've been growing at a Kager, which is a compound annual growth rate of about 700% annually. You just raised 64.6 million um, in your Series B, led by Excel, which is based out of the Valley. I think in total you've raised roughly 88 million. If I'm not mistaken, that's a lot of money, you know, and I think I'm also on the capital market side. So, you know, I think we hear these numbers all the time, but on the podcast, I love to like slow it down for a second and just be like, you know, 64 million. I mean, getting to a million in annual sales for any entrepreneur knows how difficult that is. So um, for you now, having raised that kind of money, a series B, first of all, how does it feel? Uh, second of all, how do you from a mental health perspective, keep yourself sane when you're trying to do uh, a couple of things. For one, lead lead the helm, you know, uh, with your with your co-founder, of course. Um, build this reputation for other women in the region, but also take care of yourself at the same spectrum. That's a lot going on, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, how do we feel about the fundraising? I think uh, it's always a relief to see that we can fight another day. Um, yeah. Obviously, uh, pride as well. Uh, you know, we were the first Indonesian company to get into YCOM. Uh, we've been setting the bar, you know, to open up the market really to, to investors who would otherwise perhaps not see Indonesia as a, as a market or Indonesian startups right. as having a ton of potential. So having that, that last race, I think, definitely has been a source uh, of joy. Obviously, it also comes with a lot of pressure. You know, the, the money doesn't come for free. Um, it's all about, um, you know, it's all about fast growth. It's all about um, being able to reach that next phase of growth. Um, so I think there is that that element of pressure as well. But but you know, it, it, the the amazing thing now is that we have room to play. Uh, we have room to expand our technology to other countries that may also need it in Southeast Asia. Um, as you know, or as you may know, we've now expanded to Philippines. So we're not just in Indonesia, but we're also in a second market. So. Our hopes and dream is obviously to bring this really great tech um, to all of Southeast Asia. If we can cover all the countries and if we can, 
you know, build this instant payment and if we can change the market so that um, this new digital economy can come to being in these countries, I think that would be super duper amazing. Um, and coming to your second question, how do I, how do I keep sane? <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, the other great thing about having raised these funds is that we can hire some really great, amazing, smart people. Um, so for us, the co-founders, we don't have to be, you know, looking at Slack all day and all night long. Uh, we don't have to do anything and everything anymore. So we've got a lot of experts. We've got a lot of really smart people um, to come on board and join us and help run the, the uh, company. So I guess now, uh, you know, I can have a bit more of a work-life balance. <laughs> so closer to maybe right. 2080 rather than 100% just work. <laughs> Yeah, I always love hearing that kind of transition, right? Um, like I, I, I went to school in Ottawa and, and saw a company like Shopify go public. And one of the things I always wondered, and the question is to you as well, when you get to that transition where now it feels like, I don't want corporate, but if you, if you kind of know where I'm going with this, it's like you start with three people and then you get to 10 employees, then you hit a million in, in, in revenue and then you raise 60 million and all of a sudden you're like 500 people. Things are different, right? Yes, you still have the startup DNA, but now you're operating more formally like a well-established corporation. When did that hit you for, for you? Like when, you know, when was that feeling visceral almost? Interestingly, I think it's only hit me um, quite recently, maybe in the last six months. I think for a long time, maybe I was in denial. I, I, I still think of us as a really small company. Um, it doesn't help that we, we um, hired the 200 people that we did through COVID. So I'd never seen them in person, actually. I've only ever seen a lot of us now on screen uh, wow. on Google Meets. Um, so I think I think that that was definitely something that um, that came more of as a shock um, in the past six months. Uh, why as a shock? Because suddenly, you know, when when you're 50 big or 50 small, you say A or B, you have a, a certain goal in mind, everybody goes for that goal because everyone's in the same room. Um, you know, everyone's doing exactly the same thing. Everyone knows what the other person's doing. At 500 people, suddenly you don't even know the person who, you know, is sitting next to you or some people who are on the same call as you. And, and suddenly you have to, you know, have various meetings. You have to repeat uh, certain information over and over again. You suddenly have departments popping up. Um, so you have to have a little bit more professional cadence. Six months, that's really hit me. Um, and especially you know, on the op side now, I think we have something like 15 departments. That's insane. When we started out, we had no departments. It was just a bunch of us in a house trying to work together and to create something cool. So, yeah. Do you, do you ever miss those days? Like where, you know, it's just 10 people. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you do, but... Curious, because some founders like to be on one side versus the other, but. I think I'm, I miss that closeness. I miss that feeling of being a bunch of bandits trying to, you know, fight the fight. I, I think, you know, we've always said we're, we're the underdogs. We didn't, we, we were nobodies really. You know, I remembered, um, for example, Moses and I pitching to one of the biggest banks in Indonesia. And I think we looked about 12 and 18 respectively and just going, yes, we will bring you millions of dollars of volumes a day. And they were like, who are you people? Are you crazy? <laughs> so I, I kind of miss those frontier days. Um, but I also think that journey is still really interesting, you know, whereas in the past it was about doing an, anything and everything that it takes to succeed 
Now it's about, you know, hey, how, how do I scale myself as a leader? How do I, how do I, you know, get all these people rallying with me still? How do I get, you know, how do I work with senior guys who are, who are the experts in their fields, but how do I guide them in the right direction so we can still go towards the goal? So while I do miss it, I think um, the challenges that I face now are even more interesting than before. I love it. Well, but there's definitely an exciting road ahead. Um, I got two more for you. The first, I didn't want to let this slide, but um, just just so you know, I'm not like skipping over it. Being the first <laughs> Southeast Asian um, you know, startup, I want to say at the time, going into Ycom is no easy feat, right? I mean, that that's massive. And that's why I didn't want to glance over it. Um, I just wanted to wait. Uh, before a few questions, but for those who don't know, Ycom is an American, basically like seed accelerator. Um, a lot of the companies you know today, DoorDash, Airbnb, Stripe, Dropbox, Twitch, Reddit, maybe Coinbase, just to name a few, uh, have come through those doors. And so for Zended to, to enter for the first time, representing not an, not only a country, uh, but an entire region is, is quite a, a feat. You know, how, how was that feeling like? Yeah, I mean, it's been super fantastic to kind of pave that way. Uh, I think what we've done is not only to open up, you know, the eyes uh, uh, of people in the Valley to be like, hey, there's this all other region that's really interesting. Um, you know, hey, that Indonesia, by the by, is the fourth uh, largest or fourth most populous country in the world. Yeah. And most people have never even heard of Indonesia. They'll be like, oh, where is Indonesia? Is it in Bali? Um, actually, no, it's the other way around. Um, so one part is exposing, you know, um, a bunch of investors to this whole market where they're a huge opportunity. The other part is obviously um, opening up the eyes of other potential founders in Indonesia. You know, suddenly we're saying, hey, it is possible. It's possible to build good tech. It's possible to get investment from the Valley. It's possible for you to be able to grow something and, and, and make an impact and be really big. Um, so I think it's been just so amazing to be able to do that. That's amazing. Um, for specifically the female founders in the room listening, uh, I know you, you, you do a lot on the mentorship side. I know this is a, a topic that's close to your home and probably hard. Um, but curious for them specifically, what are some lessons that you can pass on maybe pieces of advice that, especially if they're looking to start, right. Uh, for aspiring founders, just setting the scene for you. What would be some of those uh, lessons learned? Yeah, I think um, there are going to be, number one, and especially as a female founder or as a female in general in finance, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to say no, uh, who are going to say, you know, you're not going to be able to do this. Um, are you sure you have the skill set to be able to, you know, to make a financial model or or whatever else? Or now, you know, are you sure you're going to have the skill set to be able to run a tech company? Um, I think, I think take the no with a grain of salt. It's okay. Um, but at the end of the day, you just need one person to say yes. I mean, for me starting out, uh, in the industry, as I said before, someone took a chance. My manager at the time saw something in me and said, yeah, let's try it out. Even though I didn't have any experience in finance, um, you know, he said, give it a go uh, and it worked out. So I think, um, as with everything, it's all about the hustle. It's all about working hard, you know, startup, as they say, is 99% execution. Um, 
So I think I think that that grit, that hustle, is definitely a must if you want to start uh, a company, whether a traditional one or a startup. Um, and, and I think secondly, it's about uh, find yourself good partners. I didn't get to where I am today on my own. I have three other co-founders who've been so amazing, uh, co-founders with different skill sets who can share the load. So I think if I have another um, advice for potential founders, find yourself some co-founders because this journey is really, 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 really tough. So to have someone to lean on, to have someone to bounce ideas off of, to have someone to stress, uh, to help share the stress and the load, I think is super duper helpful in this journey. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.